and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I am going to be talking about the Thunder Philadelphia 76ers game. Just kind of who starred from that. Also going to be talking about Charlie Brown Jr. and his debut he had. I'm going to be talking about some of the storylines that we are getting from the current standings. And I'm also going to be giving a preview of the Thunder's next game against the Boston Celtics. But just teeing it off against the Philadelphia 76ers, this was a game that had a lot of question marks on it. And I discussed it in yesterday's preview podcast, but there were a lot of dominoes that you know, were kind of set in place to fall for the Philadelphia 76ers. And if they didn't, it would actually helped out the Thunder a lot. And it came from their injury report. They didn't know if they were going to have Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, I think even Furkman Korkmaz was on that list too. That's like four major, well, I'd say three major pieces. Obviously, Simmons and Joel Embiid are kind of their duo. Uh, right outside that is Harris, and then Korkmaz is one of the more important role players they have. But that's four pretty crucial pieces that they'd be missing out on. And I said, you know, if, if they're all wiped, the Thunder could have actually had the game. And we learned like right before tip-off that all four of those guys listed, they were good to go. The questionable label they had, just a facade. I, I don't know if they needed to like throw the Thunder off guard or anything, but they were all able to play. And for the Thunder, I mean, their injury report was pretty set in stone. They knew what was going to be happening going on into the game. No Lou Dort and Tony Bradley, who was listed as questionable, got ruled out a couple hours beforehand. So those were the two main guys outside of the ones we already know and SGA, Gabriel Deck. Josh Hall, Muscala, and Al Horford. So they were all out, but nothing too out of the normal outside of Lou Dort and Tony Bradley. So you kind of tee this game off, and it didn't look like a blowout to begin with. The Philadelphia 76ers, they were only up 16-11, to 11, kind of through the first four minutes. That's when Mark Dagnalt had to burn a timeout, and that's when we saw some rotational changes. But for the first four OKC looked really good. They were hanging in there, and it's because they were just going right to Teo Maladon and Moses Brown for bang-bang plays. We're talking high ball screens every time, and Moses Brown was looking amazing. He rattled off three straight baskets just right under the rim, You know, probably like two dunks and a layup, whatever it is. Just really close shots, wide open around the basket. I think Baisley even found him on the weak side for one of his shots too. But Moses Brown was feeling it, and that's something we haven't seen in about a month or probably not a month, a couple weeks. I'd say like two weeks, we have not seen Moses Brown really operate in open space like he did to start off the game. So it was a big high note, and I think that's why they were able to hang around. But the 76ers, they got up because unlike the Thunder, who were just really close to the basket, they started spreading the floor out. And Seth Curry, of all people, was the one who got the hot hand. He hit two threes to get him up five, and that's when Dagnall started kind of changing up things but the Thunder they got on a quick 5-0 run surprisingly kind of to cinch that gap up because you know they were still going to the Brown Maladon connection and even Darius Baisley he was driving in to kind of open up some crevices but um yeah it, it kind of just set the stage for more of like a one possession back and forth leads were flickering Philadelphia kind of had their foot in the door but you know it was like it'd get tied it'd be like a one-point game they just couldn't get up that big of, you know, uh, a lead. And in the final three minutes, that changed. They scored seven straight points, and it's because Oklahoma City, they went to a small ball lineup. They didn't have Tony Bradley, and 
Obviously, Isaiah Roby's the next man in line in that situation. Six foot eight, six foot nine, give or take. You can kind of go wherever you want there, but he gets thrown into the lion's den. And it's not like the games we've seen in the past where it's the like Wizards or the Pacers where, you know, their backup centers, they're good, but like size wise, they're not gigantic. Like um, the Pacers literally had O Shaper set who's six foot seven, playing 42 minutes for them. And that's where Roby kind of got his chance at small ball five. And against the Wizards, it's players like Daniel Gafford, who was by all accounts really good, but he's not on a crazy level. He was having to deal with Joel Embiid and Dwight Howard in the kind of stint he played in the first. So whenever he got put in, it was a bad situation to begin with. And Doc Rivers just wanted to exploit it so bad. So they were going inside and they were getting the results that they needed to get up and by the end of the frame they were up 34 to 26 it looked pretty good for them but percentage wise it was still looking even like the thunder they weren't really falling off a cliff i think they both shot like 54 percent maybe philadelphia was up by a couple tenths but it was neck and neck to begin with and the only real difference was where the points were coming from the point spread oklahoma city they had 20 of their 26 points coming from the paints while the 76ers they were able to get points in the paint as well, but they hit four triples to kind of stretch the floor out a little bit, and whenever they were going inside, it was a lot easier. It wasn't like uh, all clogged up like the Thunders lanes kind of were by the end of the final 12. But entering the second quarter, that's kind of when we saw the defensive adjustments from Doc Rivers, and you didn't really see it to start out. It was kind of a standstill, like an eight-point lead, still 34-26, to for about the first two minutes before Shake Milton got in and got a runner. So it was kind of the bench units to start it out. But once Shake Milton got his runner in and got the 76ers up 10 points, they were not looking back. They kept on to that 10-point lead. They were expanding it. I think they got up to 15, and they were good. Thunder, they could not really hit a shot. They were getting kind of sloppy with the basketball. Ty Jerome was really good, but outside of that, there weren't many options. So from around that 10-minute mark to like the 6-minute mark, just a little inside there, Philadelphia was up 10-plus points. And it got shriveled down to 9 points off of really just Moses Brown cherry-picking. So he didn't get back on defense. And whenever the Thunder were able to get the basketball away from the 76ers, it might have been a steal. But Darius Baisley, he was kind of driving in, crossed the timeline on the right side of the floor, and he just darted it up to Moses Brown. He was wide open, just got an easy two-handed flush. So they were back to down nine, and they couldn't capitalize. And the 76ers, they got a couple more shots to rattle in, and that was all she wrote. Like, they were up 15, they were up 60 to 45 by halftime, and they ended it off with, like, a Ben Simmons dunk with, like, a second left. So it was rough. I mean, there was a span where... The 76ers actually scored seven straight to get it up 16 whenever it got narrowed to nine, but that was just how it was. Like they replied, Thunder could not get back in it. And overall, when you look past that two minutes of kind of just nothingness, the Thunder were only in a single digit contest for 22 seconds in those like final 10 minutes. So it's just very telling. They couldn't get a run to save their life. Ty Jerome was really solid though. He had 10 points in the quarter, perfect from the field, 3 of 3. Two of those shots came from distance, but 
no one else was really there to back him up, and that's what ended up hurting because they had guys like Joel Embiid still being nagging presences, and even Shake Milton, who got that runner, he kept at it. He had a seven-point quarter of his own, so kind of too many options that the Thunder couldn't really cover, whereas on the 76ers end, there were about like one to two guys they needed to cover at all times. They could leave the other three open, just pack the paint, and they were going to be set, so that's why they were up, and they're also up because they were still really adamant in the field goal category. They outshot the Thunder 56-47 to by halftime, but the real difference was kind of from the perimeter again, where the 76ers... They were shooting really well. They were shooting over 50% from three, seven of 13. Oklahoma City, on the other hand, they were just three of 13. That's 21%. So they practically didn't even need to guard them, and they would have got a great defensive stop. That's kind of how it was for the Thunder, and it kind of led on for the entire game, but that's just how it began for them. So they couldn't get that really strong core to start things out, and that's how it hurt. On top of that, you also had the turnover bug. 13 turnovers for the Thunder, and that led to 12 points on the other end for the Philadelphia 76ers. And to go into that third, it was still much the same, where you saw some turnovers from the Thunder, you saw the 76ers just capitalize off those on top of more perimeter shots, and they got up to 20 two minutes into the quarter. And they got it through a 9-2 run, and as the game just progressed, the gashes got larger and larger for the Thunder. They were up 27 points in the quarter. And then Mark Dagnalt made the move to put in Charlie Brown Jr. And I didn't mention this in the very first quarter, but he got to play like 52 seconds. He really got to play nothing. He just got thrown out and he was pulled away. And by that point, it seemed like Mark Dagnalt was just not going to play him again. And it was a very dirty move. Like, you're, you're kind of getting down. Why would you pull him? You would only play him 52 seconds in his debut. That is terrible. So he kind of got back on track, giving him more time. He got to kind of close out the frame, got four minutes of action. So serious minutes. Had a couple of good moments in that time. First shot, though, was like a corner three. Just got smacked by Ben Simmons. So it wasn't a very good beginning for him. But as time progressed, he looked better. I'll go into him a little bit after I kind of just break down the final numbers. But he was all right. But um, as a quarter, though, yeah, the Thunder just, they weren't they weren't all right. They were down 93-66. to 66, And with 12 minutes to go, I mean, we already know it wouldn't have worked anyways. But Mark Dagnall, he wasn't, he wasn't over yet. He wanted to keep the starters in and kind of see their grit, their perseverance. And, I mean, I think it's a good call by him. Uh, you want to see the, that second unit guys, like, two, but might as well just see if they're able to narrow it down. So you had the starters for the Thunder, Doc Rivers. He had the bench unit pretty much riding out the whole entire uh, 12 minutes. You had players like Paul Reed, for instance, playing the majority of that time. And they were actually outplaying the Thunder starters. So... You had turnovers, more turnovers from the Thunder, 76ers just snowballing their lead, and just over time, from like the 8-minute mark to the 6-minute mark, one after another of those starting five guys got replaced by a bench unit, and that's when you got to players such as Ty Jerome getting minutes again, Isaiah Roby, Charlie Brown Jr., just those names 
who got to close it out. So Charlie Brown got the final six minutes to work with. And as I said, a little bit of good spurts from him, good spurts from that bench, but never was going to be enough. Philadelphia, they had this one. They got up as large as 37 points, believe it or not. And to close out the game, they won 121 to 90. So another 30 plus point loss here, 31 points in favor of the 76ers. So with that W, they broke a four game losing streak, actually. And now they finally got their 40th win. They're 40 and 21 on the year. Whereas the Oklahoma City Thunder, we already know this, but they are looking really, really bad. I mean, that was their 14th loss in a row. And this was their kind of their game that we've been waiting for for a little bit. If they would get to this point. Yes, they did. They have tied their franchise record for the longest losing streak at 14. They did it back in their inaugural season where you kind of just had guys filtering in and out of the roster. I've talked about Johan Petro before. Yeah, he was playing on that team. Just kind of those misfit toys that you don't really talk about. All of them combined. They lost 14 in a row. And the Thunder, they just got to that mark. They can actually get above that or, you know, go the other way on a winning streak on their next one. But just kind of something to talk about there. And then overall, they are 20 and 41. They looked all right to begin the season, like hovering around 500. It's just falling apart, and it's clear what the motives are. You want to be losing games to improve your kind of lottery standings. They're fifth right now, kind of sandwiched in a cushion on both sides between that four spot as well as that six spot. But hopefully, you'll be able to kind of snap that heading into tonight's game against the Boston Celtics. But just kind of breaking down what we saw from the game. First off, Philadelphia... They were just good. I mean, all around, they were able to perform, not just from the overall standing from the floor, but as well as a three. I mean, they shot mid-50s overall, and from downtown, they shot 14 of 31. That's 45%, guys, and that's a pattern we've seen. Oklahoma City has done a really bad job guarding the perimeter for whatever reason, and it's just been kind of nagging. Continued with a team like the Philadelphia 76ers. A couple of gunslingers. It's not like they just are overpowered with shooters. Like Ben Simmons, he's a penetration guy. Joel Embiid, he's able to stretch the floor. But is that his number one kind of skill? No. But they do have a couple guys like Curry, Korkmaz, and then off the bench players like Shake Milton. And even Anthony Tolliver got to play. So just all around, they had guys making, you know, maybe one, two, or three shots. But that gonna, that's going to add up for them. And that's exactly what happened in the game. And for the Thunder, if you're going to let up that amount of points, you got to play near perfect as well. We're not able to do that. They shot mid-40s from the floor. And they shot just 7 of 30 from downtown. That's 23%. So failed to even make a quarter of their tries. I will say, um, in terms of guarding the superstars, they thought the Thunder did a good job. The leading scorer for them was Joel Embiid, who had 21 points in 23 minutes, went to 6 of 10 from the field, and then also from the foul line, he went 7 of 9. But it could have been much worse. I know in the last game, it was kind of similar to where Embiid didn't need to play much of the game, and he still got like 25-plus. Maybe silence him a little bit here. And then outside of that, no one else scored above 15 points. They had a group of five players who scored anywhere from 10 to 12 points. 
Of those of kind of note, you had Ben Simmons, who had 12 points on the game. Tobias Harris had 11 on the game. Forkman Korkmaz had 10. And then also looking down into the bench, they had two other ones in Tyrese Maxey and Paul Reed. Maxey had 11. Paul Reed had 10. And on top of that, Paul Reed had nine rebounds. So, you know, I said it coming into the draft day podcast. Check way, way back. I said the Thunder should have got Teo Maladone or Paul Reed. We got Maladone. Paul Reed, we don't have him, but it looks like he is beasting for the Philadelphia 76ers here. So I'm happy for the guy. Looked great in the G League. Looks like it's translated uh, just fine for him. So good on that. And I think also good just overall from the team perspective in the game. They did a great job just forcing the Thunder into missteps. The Thunder... They had 30 turnovers in this game, and that is a season high by a lot. Their second worst of the season was 25 turnovers. So going five above what your typical kind of stat line is, not even typical, what their worst was entering the game just kind of shows how flustered they were from start to finish. And because of it, the 76ers were able to get 35 points off of turnovers but they also got 22 steals which i haven't searched it up but i'm just gonna assume that's probably a season high for them because that is a a lot of steals but defensively that's kind of what helped them out i mean the thunder they were kind of weighing uh around that like 85 point target for a while like you didn't even think they would reach it final minutes they were able to hit that but it was just it was just not a good night from them did not look like you were watching 2021 NBA basketball they look like they're about 20 years behind on some of the stuff they were doing and they just weren't able to really evenly coat the basketball around they ended the game with 21 assists but you still can't have that big of a gap between turnovers and assists and this is something that we've seen from them really just all month long this is the fourth time in the month where they've actually had more turnovers than they have had assists and then on top of that that's their seventh time in the month of April, where they've just had over 20 turnovers in the game, and obviously, it's the first time they've broken that 30 turnover threshold, but yeah, just clumsiness has killed them every single time they've walked onto the hardwood so so far, and they need to fix that heading into tonight's game against the Celtics, and I'd assume Dagnall's going to be really just hammering down the starters, and maybe even some of the bench guys on this, because a lot of the turnovers you saw came from some of the star players, or at least for right now, some of the bigger players on the roster. Alexei Pokashevsky, Teo Maladone, Kenrich Williams, Sveen Mikhailuk, they all had five turnovers in the game. And right behind them, Darius Baisley had four, and Moses Brown, he ended the game with three. So all these kind of mainstays could not keep their grip on the basketball at all. And for those kind of not having as much turnover problems, they weren't shooting very well either. So it, it was kind of just a hard balance. There was actually no balance at all. It was just everyone was kind of stuck in a free fall mode and it got really ugly really fast for them to the point that, you know, by the end of the game, they were actually nearing being down 40 points. But one guy that was really impressive in this game was Ty Jerome. And he has just been playing his own type of basketball all year. I think that's something we can all agree on. Ever since he's transitioned from the G League bubble, he's been a guy of his own. Like he will break the mold of this typical high ball screen, go into the interior, drive and dish style of play. 
he actually likes to just wait at the top of the key for like 10 seconds and just let stuff materialize come to him he doesn't play like you know maladone and sga has even guys like Baisley when he has the ball even poku i'd say he just waits up top and he'll get a screen if someone goes under that screen he's gonna take a step up and just pop it and he kind of has limitless range probably might have the longest kind of three-point arsenal on the entire team talked about I think it was a week or two ago he had two threes in a row that were from like 32 and 30 feet maybe even farther than that but he just has whenever he's locked down he's locked down and he found it in the game he led the team and just led the game with 22 points off the bench shot eight of 12 and from three-point range he was feeling it I mean he shot four of eight and on paper that's just like that's 12 points but he was the only guy that you could actually rely upon to make a shot outside of like 22 feet. He had four out of the Thunder seven three-point shots made. So that's just a little bit of a comparison. He was the only guy the 76ers even had to worry about from all three levels of the floor. So, you know, respectively, they're going to help out and it's going to lead to crevices inside and he took that opportunity when he did have high ball screens or he just wanted to work in space he'd go in for mid ranges or he just simply go up for a runner floater layup whatever you want to call it and he got it to go so he was very elusive in how he's playing we talked about it before like he's not gonna blaze right by you pretty slow but he's a good decision maker and now we're starting to see him just as a reliable scorer we've seen it it's been inconsistent but you know, he'll get one of those redeemable games every couple of times around, and this was definitely one of them for him. So the hope is he's able to kind of move forward from this against the Celtics and kind of keep this same positive impact. But yeah, as I said, probably the the only really great, great guy on our team Monday. And it was just that, you know, the points on top of him not kind of fumbling the ball around. Only had one turnover, had two rebounds, two assists, but really need to focus kind of on that one turnover stat line he was not you know going into dangerous situations and if he was he was passing the ball around to kind of help out and prevent some some tough times didn't want to contribute to those 30 turnovers at least not that much because he did have that one but outside of him thought there were a couple of guys who did kind of all right I think Moses Brown is a guy who I'm actually impressed with despite the three turnovers because he has kind of came back a little bit from his real kind of slump and I'm not going to say he's out of the slump it's kind of like what we were saying with Darius Baisley in the beginning months of the season where we said you know it's going to be an up and down kind of trend here and for every one good game there's going to be three bad ones and we just kind of learned to accept that obviously now it's a bit different like his bad game right now is what we would have called a really good performance from him in January or February and Moses Brown's kind of in that spot where for every three bad games, he's going to have a pretty good game. And I wasn't blown away with his performance, but I thought he did all right. He had 11 points on five of eight shooting and he had eight rebounds. So it was good. I just really liked him, not just the stat lines, because he can get those stat lines just out of thin air. But I liked how he was kind of working in the system and he was getting most of those points just off of screens and boxing out. And even had a couple snag rebounds, but he's been struggling with boxing out. He's been struggling kind of getting to his spots and evading contact when he goes up. He did both that, both those things just really well. So I'm going to net, net that as kind of a good game for him. And Isaiah Roby, he was kind of a bit iffy. 
he looked really good in the last two games. That's why he deserved a shot, and when you talk about Bradley being out, it was obvious he was going to be playing most of the game at the five. He did that. I said yesterday, the matchup with the 76ers is about as bad as it can get for someone like him, and you know, let it be known, it, it definitely was. And I think that he actually could have been a pretty big nuisance to the 76ers if he had gotten the three to go. In general, he had seven points and eight rebounds. And on that flip side, you had from the 76ers, you know, guys like Dwight Howard getting 11 rebounds, Paul Reed getting nine rebounds, but they really were just able to not really guard him seriously. And that could have contributed to some of their defensive rebounds, to be quite honest with you. And it's because he just was not stretching the floor out. When he's playing at the small ball five, it can go really, really good or really, really bad for him. And it all just hinges upon how he does in open space. If he has a three, he needs to take it. And if he has a lane, he needs to take it. He shot just two of nine in this game. And from downtown, he was bad. I mean, he didn't even make a shot. He went 0 of 5. And there was even, like, I think an air ball or two sprinkled in there. So he couldn't get into that kind of facet of his game. If he was getting that go, like getting that to go down, maybe like a 40% efficiency last night, that could have opened a lot more opportunities up for the remainder of the team. But because he wasn't able to shoot the ball, you know, by that like third try, was there really a point in guarding him from up top? No, you're going to risk it. And you're going to see what he's able to do. And he was not able to do much damage. So overall, it wasn't his best game. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. We've seen everybody kind of play bad. This was all around just a bad performance from everybody. So you can't knock him. But he just needs to get that three-point kind of back into check. And he should be good to go at small ball five, especially against the Boston Celtics. And I'll kind of go into that why in just a second. Outside of, you know, the guys in Jerome... Brown and Roby, Baisley and Maladone, they both got over 10 points. Baisley had 14, just working around the basket. And Maladone, he had 11 points on 4 of 8 shooting, also had 2 steals. And I liked how he was still operating under the basket. He's had more chances with the ball, with Dort being out and Baisley kind of stepping a bit back in the game. It let more kind of traditional offense flow out, and I really liked it from him. Poku... You know, he went 3 of 11, one of his more errant games, went 1 of 6 from outside, but he still always kind of pieces together those highlight reel plays where he's just dangling his arm around a defender to get up like a scoop and score, or he's doing step back threes that just don't find the mark. That's what you saw from him, so you would hope he's able to kind of move forward, and I think the biggest kind of deal with him was some of the passes he was making that, you know, were not very typical. Like, he was orchestrating well in the pick and roll. He was throwing darts across the floor, had five assists on the game, and even had two steals to kind of help out there, too. But outside of those names, wasn't a ton of glory from the roster. Charlie Brown Jr., though, I thought was pretty good based on the circumstances. So just kind of gets thrusted in by Mark Dagnall. As I said, the first quarter was kind of just nothing for him. Second quarter didn't play. Second half, though, he closed pretty well. Played 11 minutes in total, and he had five points and two steals. Went 1 of 4 for those five points, so he had to work from the free throw line to get two of them. But defensively, he was very, very solid. He's got a seven-foot wingspan to him, so he's pretty lanky, and he was able to get right to picking people's pockets. He did it like two, three times. I think one of those times he didn't end up getting the ball. 
but he was just really close to the 76ers second unit every second he was in there so he really just fits exactly what we wanted to see from players from the Thunder I think that what he did just based on the defense alone probably should garner him minutes in tonight's game against the Celtics hopefully Dagnalt is able to kind of do that because this shouldn't be like a Justin Robinson situation where you just take the minutes right away from him because he had a very good debut and this was kind of a game where with 11 minutes you probably should have thought he deserved more because he did we were down 30 points with like eight minutes to go in the fourth and you still wanted to see the starters in I think Baisley went all the way down until the six minute mark and that's when you saw Brown come in there was not really a point in that that kind of risks injuries. It's kind of already determined what will happen. Give Brown and some of these second unit guys a, another shot. And it was kind of hinging upon those like Deontay Burton minutes where you're going to throw Burton in for the final four minutes. What do you think he's going to do? You think he's going to be a team player? Hell freaking no, he's not. He's going to be jacking up shots, doing crazy stuff to try to stat pad. And Brown didn't do that, but I wouldn't have blamed him if he did it, because if you're going to give someone six minutes on a 10-day contract, what are they going to do? Just sit around and let stuff come to them? No, they're going to be playing every minute like it's their last, and that's what he did, and hopefully it was enough to impress Dagnall, because it impressed me enough. He was one of the top five guys on the roster, just based on the sample size he was given. So Brown, he's going to have his next chance tonight, same as everybody else playing the Boston Celtics at six. It's going to be another kind of early start game as they wrap up their back-to-back -back set in the East Coast. And then they're going to move along into the next one. They get a break, and then they're right back to action on Thursday night. But just talking about the grand scheme of things, kind of leading into the game, just standings-wise, there is a couple of notes that should be taken. Number one, the... Top four race has actually changed a little bit. Orlando and Detroit have shifted. Orlando, they've lost six in a row, but Detroit, they are still kind of treading the waters of winning every like one out of three games. And typically, that is a pretty terrible ratio. But when you're talking ending the season out where teams are separated by like a game, you can't be losing like that when the team right behind you in the standings has lost 14 in a row and the team ahead of you now they lost six in a row and it didn't seem like they would have been an issue last month but now lo and behold they have become an issue and it's because yet again frank jackson frank jackson thank you so much this guy kind of got screwed by the thunder he's gotten his second chance with the pistons on a two-way almost getting 20 points again he got 18 points led the pistons in scorers and they were able to dismount the atlanta hawks 100 to 86 and because of that now they are the team that is closest to thunder they are three and a half games behind the rockets for number one while the thunder they are five games behind so there's a one and a half game gap and just above them with the orlando magic they're three games behind and they are just two games there's only two games separating us between them if we lose against the celtics which you'd probably bet that but you don't know for sure if they lose against the boston celtics this is going to be a one game difference between four and five and a one and a half game difference between three and five so 
just keep that on notice and when you're talking you know the games behind thing it's probably going to kind of stick at that same margin like if the houston rockets fall down a little bit everyone's games back is going to trend upwards but i think it's going to kind of stay because the houston rockets they've just gone into full tank mode because the rockets they're shutting down john wall for the rest of the year and we kind of got the first the first jab at it with al horford the rockets know what they're doing they want to have at least well not even at least they want to have the top odds going into the lottery night and it's good for them it's also good for us because if we get that pick we're going to be getting a top five prospect and the top five prospects in this class are more kind of hyped up than we have seen in a long ass time like i'm talking i don't know i would probably talk about like the lonzo draft class but i wouldn't really go there i don't know I do remember that was really hyped up between like Lonzo, him and Tatum. Maybe like the Andrew Wiggins draft class of 2014, I think it was. That one was super hyped up. I don't know if there's a good comparison in between that class and this one, but there's a lot of kind of talks leading into the draft lottery. So this is big for us and going up against the Boston Celtics should be able to get another loss here and just help improve our stance as we kind of move to like the last 10 games of the year for the Oklahoma City Thunder but just talking about what to look for in this game there's going to be a couple of injuries for the Boston Celtics that could change things just a little bit because Jason Tatum is not going to be playing in this game he's really that main one he has been the star for the Celtics but outside of him you still have the Time Lord himself and Robert Williams, who is questionable for the game, and even Kemba Walker, who is also out. So it's going to be a little bit drained of talent. They're still going to have a pretty good amount. They got Marcus Smart, who can play at the one. We've seen him play pretty good there. They didn't even want to trade him, or at least that was the rumor, to you know the Hawks or the, the Magic and a potential deal for Collins or Vucevic. Say it clearly like the guy, so he'll be good in time. Jalen Brown has just completely transformed his game so you need to keep him kind of on lookout as well and then just your other typical guys on the Boston Celtics you kind of need to be checking out maybe giving a second look because that is a pretty stacked roster however I will say this is not going to be a guarantee just like I said with the last game against the 76ers a team without its superstars they can kind of find themselves in an identity crisis. So if they don't find kind of second wins from players such as the Browns, such as the Smarts, I know Peyton Pritchard's look good, Grant Williams, Tristan Thompson, those names, even Evan Fournier, they might be in a heap of trouble. And I think it's one of those mutual relationships where we want them to win. And I don't think they want, well, I guess they do want us to lose because they want to win. But I think both fan bases are kind of on the same page. Because the Boston Celtics, I mean, they want to be able to stay secure here. Because they aren't actually really safe for a play-in. This was a team that was supposed to have championship aspirations. I'm sure they still do. But they're only the sixth seed right now. And they're one and a half games behind the Hawks for five. And right below them at number seven is the Miami Heat. They're a half game back. And... You know, you don't want to see the Celtics in play-in territory. I don't care. Like, if the Celtics fizzle out, lose two straight games and are bounced, that's cool. But 
you know, they have a roster that was supposed to be in the thick of things for the conversation, and they're not there right now. They have kind of been a little bit better lately. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10, but outside of that, man, they were looking like they were in major, major trouble just two weeks ago. They're on the up and up. Thunder are, are on the downward spiral. We know this, so you see if it kind of sticks through and if the Boston Celtics can get the win. That's the case. You break a new record with 15 straight franchise losses, and you look to even advance it further as the Thunder try to keep the tank just steamrolling ahead. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.